Welcome to Enabled in Academia. My name is Linky Diedrichs, your host, creator, and hopefully not the only listener of this podcast about how to survive and thrive in academia as a disabled, chronically ill, and or neurodiverse individual. And here with me today, I've got a very special guest, Dr. Nicoletta Fossati. She's a consultant anesthetist at St. George's Hospital and honorary reader in clinical education and anesthesia at St. George's University of London. And joining her, we have Sammy, the 13-year-old yellow Labrador, a lovely boy that might make an appearance somewhere in this podcast. So please, guys, give a shout out to Sammy the Lab. Nicoletta, it's lovely to have you here today. Actually, I'm thanking you for having me. It's a great opportunity to be part of this project. Nicoletta, I was wondering if we could start off by uh, you telling the listeners a little bit about your story. Yeah, it just, um, it, it could be a very long story, but to cut it really short, I moved to the UK in 2004 after working for more than 17 years in Italy as, a, as an anaesthetist. And uh, I came to London to pick up a consultant anaesthetist job at St. George's, which is still where I work. But 14 months into my consultant job, I had a subarachnoid hemorrhage, which is a bit of a mouthful, um, meaning that essentially I had a brain on bleed. I mean, uh, so there was a hemorrhage, a bleeding on the surface, largely on the surface, but part, you know, into the matter of my brain. So that obviously caused me to fall into a coma. It was a bit of difficult days for my family, of course. I was completely aware of what was going on. I woke up 12 days later in a neurointensive care and I learned that I had been operated on on day five uh, to remove a completely unbeknown to me uh, congenital arteriovenous malformation. It was a long way to recovery. Um, I am now physically disabled. My problems uh, go all through the right side of my body, but they concentrate on my lower leg and foot. So I need a tutor on my leg. We call it an ankle foot orthosis in order to be able to walk and to, to support myself outside to manage slopes and curbs. I use a walking stick. There's a little bit of weakness in my right shoulder, but probably um, an onlooker wouldn't notice that. Uh, again, and, and I'm back to doing what I used to. <laughs> That's fantastic, Nicoletta. And amazing that you were able to get back to work after such an unexpected and major setback. I remember when we were speaking earlier that you said one of the big things that was, well, I wouldn't know if it's a challenge, but something that, that really popped up after your incident is this issue about perceived changes in one's identity and mental functioning by others. And you noted that your internal narrative of yourself remains the same, but for others, you're seen as a completely different entity. Yes, unfortunately, that's what happened to me. And uh, I have to say that at the time, I started visiting some websites and even blogs, people who had gone through a very similar experience to mine. And it was very much the same for them. And uh, I remember this guy mentioning the ward round going, you know, reaching his bed at some point. So they started chit-chatting with him and, you know, people speaking to him very loud and spelling out as in, how are you? today and this man was like fine thank you uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure why you're speaking to me like that and then he mentioned something about will i be able to fly again after this operation i've had on my brain and everybody went quiet 
and they looked at each other and was like, what exactly do you mean? Because, you know, um, could be difficult for you to fly a plane. And this guy went, no, I mean, commercial uh, aeroplane travel. Will I be able to go places? So, you know, it, it's like people look at you so differently. You ask a question and people start wondering, you know, what is this person thinking? It's uh, what I mean, no one would even dream of reacting that way to a different question. You know, will I be able to fly? I said, yes, you probably can. You know, perhaps you have to be careful for a couple of months. You know, something like that. You would expect that kind of interaction. He said, no, this guy had had something to his brain, happened to his brain. So everybody's assumption was that you know, he wasn't cognitively the same person as before. Of course, we know that these problems happen after uh, brain injuries or, you know, like myself, brain hemorrhages. But the assumption is that you're not the same as before. And again, just to compound the joke, he said in this blog, and I thought I was the brain damaged one. So, <laughs> you know, so it's, uh, you have to deal with these assumptions from others. And Nicoletta, how did this affect your journey going back to work and especially the, the decision, you know, to move into academia as well? On the one hand, I was really between a rock and a hard place because of the particular circumstances my family and I found ourselves in at the time. I was still the main breadwinner and I, very honestly, put uh, was desperate to get back some some kind of paid work, of course. This wasn't possible immediately. I was out of work for, I mean, recovering on long sick leave for 10 months. But in the meantime, I was assessed in a number of different ways. There were a plan A, plan B for my return. And as my neurological recovery continued developing, there was a glimmer of hope that I could actually go back to anesthesia. But that was a phased return because clearly the concern which was easily dispelled at the beginning was about my cognitive activities I was tested and everybody was satisfied that I had my cognitive abilities intact but then there was the physical aspect which was further tested and eventually after probably something like 16 months I got back in full capacity as a consultant anesthetist and that required some uh, negotiation also on my part and I remember these sessions in theatre with very nice kind colleagues who were present in theatre with me I mean the operating theatre they let me do they would let me do all the things of my profession but obviously they were there ready to support me should I need to be supported interestingly I had had months before this happened a session of the simulator to test exactly we have an advanced simulator St George's we're very lucky in that respect and I had a full day to myself with a facilitator to explore three typical difficult scenarios that an institute can experience with patients on the operating table and so I had an opportunity to test myself. And it was very interesting because it shed a light on things that I thought would be difficult and they weren't. And also the reverse, some things I, I'd, have, I'd never have thought about. I learned that I had to negotiate around those. So it was a very interesting journey back to uh, my anesthetic activities. You were also asking me about academia. This was something that I'd had always had in mind uh, even when I was an Italian doctor and I had 
I had achieved a PhD and I was working in a university hospital. So everything seemed to be lined up. But obviously, after an event like this and just having just arrived in this country, for a while, I just uh, put my academic dreams on the back burner. And obviously, getting back to work, as I described, took up some time adapting to new circumstances. But then this academia dream again resurfaced and I found a very open and welcoming environment uh, at St. George's University of London. So that's why I then became step-by-step an honorary reader in clinical education and anesthesia. That's fantastic. And it's really heartening to hear that um, there are also cases where academia can be a very accommodating and fulfilling place for someone who's gone through a disabling event. Nicoletta, I think something that struck me while we were speaking is this whole process from having such a major health event, and you know, I not I didn't have something similar to you, but I also had a major health event, is moving through this process not only of getting to a point where you can get back to some of the activities and dreams and things that you have in life, but also learning to live with a sort of grief of a loss of one's old identity and parts of oneself. And um, I remember you saying you, in some ways, you felt like your life was a broken vase. And going through this process of putting it back together, is really quite difficult. And uh, that you actually have two birthdays, one birthday of, you know, your actual birthday and one birthday of the events when this happened to you. I was wondering if we could speak a little bit more about this process of grief. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And uh, I stick by what I said. The idea of this grief, contrary to what I, I would have thought at the beginning, this grief comes and goes. It's not as if the grief is greater at the beginning and then time helps and soothes the pain and the, the loss. That's not my experience. It's It comes and goes in ways. At the beginning, I was... I guess, essentially very happy to discover that I was alive and I could have another girl, although from a restricted view seat, so to speak, I could have a, you know, I could take part in the, I could watch the show again. So I was very, very excited about that. And even if daunting, I was feeling like, you know, I was raring to go and build up my life and our family life again around the new self, so to speak. But again, this is not a linear process. There are moments where all of a sudden you, know, you wake up on a morning and you, you're angry and, and you think to yourself, why am I so angry? Why should I be? And of course, you, with a little bit of reflection, you, you start realizing, I started realizing that it was anger about what had happened to me and to us as a family. So again, it comes and goes and it's something I've had to learn to live with and it's something that has encouraged me to be a bit kinder to myself to accept that I will have some of those days on occasion and again to accept that this thing will always be be with me and most of the time it'll be under the radar but once in a while it will resurface and I'll just have to deal with it, look it in the face and have a nice chat to myself and try to just survive and uh, wait for a better day. Absolutely. And that's why it's so important, I think, to have support networks, you know, a supportive colleagues and a supportive place where you work, 
because those are all anchors that help you deal with that grief, isn't it? If we don't have that, then sometimes, I, I know with myself, it can feel very untethering and you can feel like you've been, you've been sort of been thrown into this really big ocean of grief and loss and it's very difficult to, to navigate the storm in the ocean. But then, of course, I have a wonderful partner, a wonderful family and some wonderful friends and colleagues and those relationships in the end are the things that really bring me back to myself and back to celebrating myself as I am right now. I have to say you're completely right. It's all revolved over these 15 years since the bleed. It's all been about rebuilding myself with the help and support of other people. A lot of people have told me over the years that I was amazing, that I was extraordinary. And I'm like, I don't think so. I've always thought that the the strength and the potential of the human spirit is really un, untapped most of the time. And we should be grateful for that because we don't want to be tested, you know, like I have or certainly other people much less lucky than I was, have been. But when the time comes for the human spirit to be tested, there's a lot of untapped potential. I never felt I was special or particularly brave. Again, another word that people have used in the past. I I never felt I was being particularly brave. I was just getting on with it. And I felt like I had no alternative, really. Many times I've, I've used this kind of metaphor this kind of analogy you know it was like being in you know traveling through a tunnel and all of a sudden there's a landslide behind you and the only thing you can do even if you can't see anything is just to try and continue to travel ahead hoping to see the famous light at the end of the tunnel but you you can't go back so I'm like there's no other option really and of course, having your family supporting you, having your friends and colleagues supporting you, you know, people who make you feel loved and valued in spite of what happened to you. It's a great, great booster for, for anyone who finds themselves in a difficult situation and they have to live that kind of work day routine which has all of a sudden become more difficult than it was before and all those lanes that I was taking for granted and had to be rebuilt again from scratch so yes people around me even um people I would never have predicted would have been on my side uh, I've had you know people who barely knew me uh, who were absolutely pivotal, crucial in helping me getting back on track at work. So uh, I've got loads of people to say thank you to, and I have done so over the years. Um, And so these relationships with all these people have been uh, strengthened, although I would offer a word of caution on that. Um, You know, it it is said that what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. But I, for one, know how much these situations can put a huge strain on relationship on relationships so it's not a surprise and i actually feel a lot of empathy for for instance those couples that break up when there's a health problem it's not necessarily because there's not enough love in that relationship it's the strain the strain that's put on the relationship can really be too much yeah, absolutely. 
and I think you know there it's so important that when something like this has happened to to you to be really honest with yourself and to check in all the time you know and that communication because it has to start with yourself doesn't it um, absolutely I know you said that you know this honesty you you were speaking about it before it's almost a kind of radical honesty and uh, what happened to you it brought what you said your inner perfection to the front and took away the pressure of hiding your imperfections I don't know if you want to speak a bit more about that the fearlessness in the end that your health events gave you this is something that I really wouldn't have expected but I consider this probably the biggest or one of the biggest positive there aren't very many <laughs> of what happened to me it's you know when something like that happens to you and I accept that a lot of people have to live with invisible disabilities and that you know when other people can't perceive your disability it could be very difficult because those people may be like, well, what's wrong with you? So it, it's a very difficult conversation at that point. But again, my disability is visible, so it presents me with different problems. There's still, there are still people who turn when I walk you know, down the street and to look at me because I walk with a visible limp. And some days I don't care. Some days it's still a little bit raw somewhere down deep. But this is to say that if you have a visible physical disability, you've got nowhere to hide. And it's very difficult to pretend that you are the same person you were before. I mean, we've been talking about your internal narrative. And of course, you feel like you're still yourself, although you're evolving into someone different, as we all do uh, through our entire life. But again, the fact is that it's very difficult to pretend uh, you can't do certain physical activities as you used to. You can't wear certain shoes anymore. You can't. And I could go on forever. Even again, silly things like the one I just mentioned. You know, just uh, being able just to wear sensible shoes. So there's no way you're gonna be able to hide behind some kind of thing. Although. At times, some people may well try to hide, but it's it's a very difficult process. So also because of my personality, I've always liked to look at problems head head on, head first. So I was like, okay, I'm very clearly not the same. I used to be. I used to be a runner, sprinter. Uh, none of this anymore, ever. So I'm like, fine, I'll make it work for me. I've always been a perfectionist and I consider myself a reformed perfectionist. And I've always mentioned this to my students during my my talks. You know, you can see that I walk with a limp. You can see that I, you know, I'm clearly not able to cope with certain physical situations. I need help. But you know what? I'm not afraid to say I don't know something. Uh, there's no such thing for me as Q&A terror. Q&A, the idea of a Q&A after a talk or a presentation at a, at a scientific meeting you know, has always been a bit of a kind of monster, but not anymore. I'm not afraid of admitting to not knowing something. I'm not afraid to engage in a conversation with the, the public because I'm like thinking to myself, look, you can see very clearly I'm not perfect. No one is, really. We may entertain the illusion, delusion, that we're perfect. No one really is. And my disabilities, as you 
pointed out simply brought that to the fore. It made it more evident to others, but most importantly to me, that all my attempt at trying to be perfect and to do things well 100% of the times is just not possible. So a bit like I was saying before, I had to learn to be a bit kinder with myself. I had to admit that at times 80% is okay, is good enough. At times even 70% is okay, depending on what you're doing. So it's the kind of acceptance and clarity of mind when you have to tackle an obstacle. And this is something that I would really give as a, if there's such thing as a message to others, then don't, don't be afraid of that. Don't be afraid of that. Be kind to yourself. Accept your imperfections. Don't be indulgent with those. I, I am not. But again, be kind. Be kind to yourself and be kind to others when they don't understand what's going on inside you. Because they may have their own problems with their own imperfections. They may have their own struggles. And it's difficult for everyone to deal with those. So let's be kind to each other. Thank you, Nicoletta. I think that's such a, a lovely and a powerful way to conclude our interview today. I think it's very difficult, isn't it? Because I think in the same way that grief comes in waves, the expectations that we put on ourselves come in waves too. Some days it's easier to accept that, you know, you won't be able to go at 100%. And other days, it can be incredibly hard. And I think that those two things, the grief and realizing your own limits and being honest with yourself are actually intimately related. Nicoletta, thank you for making the time today and sharing your story and for being so honest with us. Mm -hmm. And I really hope our listeners can take to heart the kindness that you shared with us today. Thank you very much for having me and for giving me the opportunity to share my story. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Enabled in Academia. Please do like, share and support this podcast on Twitter by following us at Enabled in Acker. If you have any questions, suggestions or impressions, please tweet at us or send me an email at enabledinacademia at gmail.com. The music for this podcast, A Room for Two, is composed by Dan Leibovitz and is available on the YouTube Audio Music Library. As always, access isn't optional for us to be enabled in academia. Yep, I'm making that a thing. <laughs>